Welcome to Tender Rage with Sunny Adcock, the show for the outrageously audacious, the loudly passionate and the slightly delusional. Together with some of my favourite people, I hope to have new, inclusive and exciting dialogues that hold space for the anger and joy that come with coming of age. So brew a cuppa and have a listen as we keep the rage tender. to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as the traditional custodians and knowledge keepers of the land and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. I would also like to warn listeners that this episode mentions mental ill health, suicide, depression and anxiety. Hello friends and welcome to another episode of Tender Rage. I am so excited that we're still doing this thing. Today is a really special episode, guys, because not only is my guest someone who is just an absolute genius, multi-hyphenate talent at just absolutely everything and someone who I really trust, she's also the co-producer and editor of this podcast, and so she's wearing many hats at the moment. She's sort of tag-teaming, editing, and being a guest. It is the fabulous Evelyn DuBose. Evelyn, how are you today? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much. I'm so excited that you're here. You are the perfect person for this episode because you just, well, let me begin by telling you what the episode's about. Maybe that'd be more helpful. So the episode is going to be about mental ill health because it's something that really needs to be destigmatized in society. It's something that we need to bring greater awareness to and it's something that affects so many of us and yet we're all kind of pressured to be silent about and I found such a beautiful nurturing friendship in Evelyn where the discourse about mental health was real it was transparent it was honest and I just felt like the conversations we were having the things that I was learning from you personally in my own life through you know watching you lead by example and through being your friend and through working with you as well in a professional capacity I just thought these were things that my listeners just needed to know we actually recorded an interview that was really similar to this conversation all the way back in early 2020, sort of peak of the pandemic where we discussed this. And it was for a journalism story that I did at university and I wasn't allowed to comment and I had really limited time. And I just wanted to keep going. I just wanted to keep the conversation flowing. I wanted to ask more questions. I wanted to like verbally just like, ah! every time she said something amazing. <laughs> I apologize for how that sounded in your ears. So I wanted to share that with y'all. So Evelyn, let's begin. I mean. I know sort of your journey a little bit with mental health, but I think our listeners who may not be as familiar with you and your journey would really get a lot of value out of hearing sort of the experiences that have informed your perspective. I feel like at this point I'm an old veteran. I've struggled with it for so many years, and at this point it just feels like it's part of my identity that I'm trying to overcome. Growing up as a kid, I didn't realize that I had struggled with it then as well, just because when you're a kid, you don't have the capacity to articulate what you're going through and you don't have any reference for what is normal. So I always thought that mental ill health was for people who had some sort of character flaw or something else was wrong with them or something had to be, or something dramatic had to happen to them in order for them to be that way, like some sort of massive world-shattering trauma. I'm like, ah, that would make more sense. Versus me, I'm a white middle-class girl. I didn't feel like I had much to complain about. But then when I first moved out and went to university, other people began telling me that the way I was behaving was not normal. I'm 24 years old now, so pretty much from the age of 18 till probably about last year, 
um, or really struggle with depression and anxiety. Was mental health something that you sort of had an awareness of as a kid in terms of, I know you were saying you had this perception of how it manifested in other people as being the sort of cataclysmic, easy to pinpoint thing, but was it something that you, you know, had family members or friends who you had seen it in but hadn't been able to recognise in yourself? It's interesting. In hindsight, you can definitely see and feel where people were expressing symptoms in your childhood that you just didn't realise that that's what that was. But as a kid, I don't know, your only perception of the world is based on what your parents tell you and what you absorb through the media. So my perceptions of mental ill health were pretty much every stereotype ever. And like, they got to have a million cats and they got to be seeing things. And like, I don't understand the difference between someone who's depressed and someone who's just really, really sad. You know, just all these sort of grand big experiences that you just don't know how to um, make sense of when you're a child. I think that's really interesting because the sort of media that we grew up with as children was so different to the media that we consume now. Media is only just starting to include sort of more progressive or informative sort of portrayals of mental health or mental ill health on screen. And I think the rare times that we would see, you know, a character experiencing mental ill health in our childhood it was very much sort of represented in a very stereotypical and often degrading way. I know at least in my own personal life that completely exacerbated the idea that mental ill health only presents in a certain way. But I think the IRL representation that was really interesting as a younger child to sort of digest was actually when Robin Williams committed suicide because he was someone who we had seen in the media as being larger than life, being a constant source of joy and a constant source of light, who you would just assume had no worries. He was, you know, obviously I wouldn't have had the the language to describe him in this way back then, but, you know, as an adult, I would have described him as, you know, a privileged white male with access to money, to job opportunities, to, you know, basically living the life that so many of us think of as being the life. And then on top of that, he's someone who was always characterized as being so joyful and so comedic. And so as a kid seeing that he literally ended his life due to mental ill health, it was such a crazy awakening for me of, oh my goodness, mental ill health looks different in so many people. Even sometimes the strongest ones can be the people who are suffering silently in the background. Before that, I had absolutely no understanding. And so I'm wondering if there were any sort of media portrayals that had a similar or even um, pop culture moments, so someone fictional or in real life, or even in your personal life, who sort of changed your perception of what mental health looks like. Ooh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I remember having a conversation when I was incredibly young with my mother about, from a technical standpoint, what committing suicide was and what being suicidal was in that someone was sad enough to want to end their own life. And I just remember thinking very distinctly as a child, like, oh my God, that's so selfish and that's so scary. Why could anyone be in that place? I don't want to die. Just like having that sort of visceral, like I really don't understand that and my brain wants to rally against it. And I think the first time I really sort of understood as a young adult from like a pop culture standpoint, what suicide was, was, yeah, in some ways, Robin Williams. But there's this one very specific episode in this TV show called Rake. It's an Australian TV show about, it stars Richard Roxburgh as a sort of mercurial 
awful lawyer human being. It's a hilarious show. But in one of the episodes, I think it was the beginning of season three, a character commits suicide just because they had no other options. Like, they were so hopeless about things getting better. They feel like their whole life had been stolen from them. And there was just no way out. I remember particularly when I watched that episode with my mother, she was most affected by the expression he had on his face. And she told me a story that when I was probably about two or three years old and my little brother was even younger, she was taking us for a walk down a Sydney street and she remembers seeing a man standing on a balcony with that exact same expression on his face, that just utter hopelessness, like no one can reach him. He was just too far gone. He was in such a dark place that nothing could reach him. It was, it's a very distinct expression and it's very quite haunting. And so the fact that that was so accurately and rather sensitively portrayed. When you see something like that reflected back at you so accurately, it's like, wow, okay, I actually understand how the world works a little bit better. So it definitely can help provide the language that we can use to articulate very, very hard to articulate sensations. A lot of us don't have the tools to articulate those sorts of sensations until we go to therapy. And therapy isn't something that everybody has access to. And it's also not something that everyone is open to. And, you know, I'm personally a huge advocate for therapy. I have been in and out of therapy for three years and will hopefully continue to be in therapy because I think it's a really positive thing. But I'd love to hear about your journey with therapy and with finding the tools and the words to articulate those sensations that you experienced from a really young age, but didn't necessarily attribute as stemming from mental ill health, especially because it seems like your sort of journey with mental ill health, sort of tackling it head on, began quite late in life. And even then, actually, I say quite late, but actually that's pretty early in comparison to some people. But, you know, you are only 24 and yet when I speak to you, you sound like an expert. And so it's so crazy to think that your sort of journey in therapy only really started around, I think you said 18. What was that like? Because I can imagine if you had lived with it for so long and had all of those feelings, unpacking that at such a sort of pivotal coming of age point in your life would have been really overwhelming, but also probably quite significant. For me in particular, I could tell that something was wrong before someone else tried to get me to see that it didn't have to be that way. So when I first started experiencing major symptoms when I was 18, the way I could only describe it was that it felt like a cog had come loose in me somewhere and like the gears were grinding and things weren't quite functioning the, the way they were supposed to, but I was still able to do most of my regular chores in life and study at uni and sort of hang out with friends, I was just crying every day and felt like everything was a burden and I was really tired and that gear was just grinding and grinding and grinding in me all the time. So when I didn't seek out therapy right away, I went to a doctor because it is a medical problem and the friend that sat me down and said, you need to talk to someone about this even if it's just the GP, was absolutely right and I'm so grateful that I had that friend and that I listened to her. So I went to the doctor and they first diagnosed it as an adjustment disorder. The thing that had catalyzed that initial bout of depression was that I had failed a university class and I'm like, I'm not the sort of person that fails a class, I'm smart. And like, if I'm nothing else, I'm smart. And I didn't think I was anything else. I didn't know back then what I was capable of. 
So the doctor diagnosed me with what's called an adjustment disorder, which is supposed to last about six months, and it's just generally characterized as like mixed depression or anxiety, and it's supposed to be a sort of catch-all diagnosis for someone who's having trouble adjusting to a major life change, and sometimes it's you lost your job or something like that. It's supposed to have a time frame on it, but my symptoms didn't have a time frame. So I started seeing a psych and the psych didn't really work for me and I didn't understand that that wasn't a something is wrong with me problem. It's a I needed to find a different therapist problem, mm. <laughs> which is something not a lot of people know. Like your first therapist doesn't have to be your last therapist. You can find someone who is as compatible with you as you would want out of any other relationship, whether it's like teacher student or like friend or colleague or coworker or client, something like that. So I went for a couple sessions and I went back home for the first time. Um, just for context, I'm Australian American and my parents were living in the States at the time while I was going to university in Sydney. So I'd go home for the Christmas holidays and they noticed the change in me immediately. Like to the people who know and love you, the difference between you exhibiting symptoms and you just as your normal, or I shouldn't really say normal, that is a word with such heavy connotations, but your usual self, like you not experiencing symptoms. And my mom used uh, a phrase from the Alice in Wonderland Tim Burton remake, like I, she told me I'd lost my muchiness. Like I was no longer as forthright and independent as I had been um, when I first left for university, but after coming back I was just, I don't know, I was hollow, I was sort of shriveled in on myself. I was more insecure than I had ever been in my life, and there have been some times in my life where I just literally couldn't think of anything that I liked about myself, so that was a new low. And when I went back the following year for my second year of university doing a degree that I really hated and just not feeling like myself, my symptoms just got worse and worse and worse until I had a complete and utter breakdown and I had my first suicidal thought. And I don't think I've heard anyone sort of explain what it feels like to have a suicidal thought. For me, it just kind of popped into my head like a sneeze. Like it was one of those sort of intrusive thought sensations where it feels like it comes out of nowhere, but it also feels like a calamity. And it is terrifying. It was like, oh my God, I am in so much pain right now. I suddenly understand what it's like. And that was knowledge that I did not want to have. I didn't want to understand what it was like. And... I don't know, it's easy. you feel the grief of, oh my God, I'm going through this. And I'd been doing therapy on and off and I feel like I would get better after a few sessions, but then I would just relapse. And so it felt like my world was ending and that I was completely coming apart. My whole understanding of myself as someone who um, can handle tough times, because I'd moved a lot when I was a kid. I'd experienced bullying and again, just a very, very low threshold of self-esteem. So in, I always thought I would be able to overcome that, but I was so struggling with it and I didn't know what was wrong with me. But I was absolutely convinced at that point in time that it was my fault and that I was doing something absolutely wrong. So going to therapy would fill me with shame and frustration, even as I was starting to be able to articulate my feelings a little bit more and to understand, oh, I have a lot of intrusive thoughts as a symptom of anxiety or low mood is not just the only symptom of depression. Sometimes it's you just can't feed yourself very well. You are unable to focus for a while. It can look different in anyone. So sort of learning the vernacular of an illness which is sort of par for the course. Like I hear cancer patients get that. They learn all these medical terms 
that come along with chemotherapy and symptoms to look out for. It's like when you sort of become indoctrinated in that sort of chronic ill health lifestyle, you learn to get specific about everything that comes with it. So yeah, and after that <laughs> mental breakdown, um, I dropped out of uni, I had to go home and live with my parents again. I just felt like my life was completely unraveling and only sort of was able to turn it around after a year of consistently going to therapy every single week and very grateful for that therapist. She saw me through a very shocking time of my life. I've tried a couple different kinds of therapy. The normal one, which is called CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Um, I did that quite a bit and I've tried imagery rescripting and schema therapy and that seemed to work for me. So there are so many different kinds available that I didn't know about. But I would just like to point out, I definitely don't consider myself like an expert. I just have a lot of lived experience. So everything that I know about mental ill health just comes from someone who has been, liaising with doctors quite a bit and has done a lot of reading but definitely doesn't have a degree. So if you are listening to this episode and you are thinking about reaching out and getting help for the first time, I'm not the expert who can diagnose you, definitely just go to a doctor. The very least the doctor will be able to give you a starting point even if it's not quite the right starting point like it was for me, it is a starting point. Yeah, we are definitely not health professionals. You know, obviously we have sort of lived experience and we have sort of the advice and the wisdom that we have learned from health professionals, but that's definitely not a substitute for directly going to them yourself. And the whole sort of goal of this episode is in through being vulnerable about our journeys and through talking about mental ill health candidly and with compassion and vulnerability that it inspires you to do the same in your own life. So hopefully these conversations can do that. And I just think you know, I appreciate you for being so vulnerable with your journey and so honest because I know it's going to resonate with so many of our listeners. In your perspective, and obviously, again, and not being a sort of health professional, this is just your sort of perspective on your experience. In being in a position where you're experiencing depression and anxiety, I'm sure intrusive thoughts were just the regular. How did you sort of distinguish between sort of that mention of suicide being just a passing intrusive thought versus being your first sort of consideration of suicide. To clarify, an intrusive thought is just a random thought that sort of will pop into your head from time to time and it can be anything, like sometimes you get little benign ones, like I'm walking down the street and my brain will go, hey, you see that leaf on the ground? You should eat it. I'm like, what? Why? (laughs) That has come completely from nowhere and makes no sense. That's an intrusive thought. It's often a symptom of anxiety, but it can be a symptom of OCD, which is an anxiety disorder. So an intrusive thought of suicide is your brain sort of just randomly saying, hey, this really sucks right now, but you know what? There's a trap door in the back. Are we tempted at all? And oftentimes you cannot be feeling suicidal. It can be just like one of those sort of heuristics in your brain where it's like this is a coping mechanism that we have just in case. Because when you're feeling upset or sometimes not even feeling that upset and that thought pops up, it's often your brain just going like, hey, we need to stop feeling this way right now. What can we do to stop feeling this way? Oh, we have felt suicidal and we know that there's an option for that in the background. And so that sort of casual suicidal thinking doesn't really suggest intent. It's just your brain trying to figure out what's going on. But then when you are actually suicidal, I feel like there are levels to it. It tends to sort of involve a sort of heightened state of neurological panic in a way. Like it will be accompanied for me with um, so many other symptoms. Like I will start dissociating very heavily and dissociating just means I become really out of touch with 
reality. I stop being able to feel and make sense of time or I'll be having a panic attack and I will just really, really, really just want what my life currently is to stop. And I would like to clarify, I've never gotten so far down that hole where I made plans. I would get intrusive thoughts of like, oh, I can just smash my head on the corner of the desk or I can just stand out in the middle of the road and pray someone doesn't actually see me in time to stop. You know, just all these sort of very, very dark things that my brain is just sort of desperately scrambling at to try and figure out a solution to the problem it's currently facing that doesn't have a quick and easy solution. To be clear, recovery is very long and very slow and you won't notice that you're better until you're better. Essentially, it's a reintegration of new and healthy habits that help cultivate a good life for you. So there's a difference between just having suicidal thoughts and having suicidal intent, and either way you should seek help for them. It's nothing to be ashamed of if you have them. Like so many people have had them. I've had so many people since I've been more open about that confess to me like, oh yeah, I've had that, or oh, I've had that every single day of my life, and it's just something that is there in my brain now. I can't get rid of it which can sometimes definitely feel like a curse, but you're definitely not alone in having them and it's not a sign of weakness, it's not a sign of character flaws. Like, I love the metaphor of you being a soldier behind enemy lines and you're out of ammo, like you lost your knife a hot minute ago and you just are just trying to survive because you're just trying to get home. So you're like, give me a stick, give me anything so that I can keep fighting but this really, really sucks and it would be easier to let myself die. So I see people who have grappled with those sorts of thoughts, whether or not there's a serious intent behind them for any measure of time as some of the toughest people out there because they've experienced that thought and gone, nope, you know what, I'm still going to keep fighting. It's really tricky sometimes when you are sitting behind enemy lines because the last thing that you want to hear when you're in that sense of hopelessness is that healing and recovery is just 1000% nonlinear and it is such a rocky and unpretty and imperfect journey which is really difficult to sort of comprehend when you're in that position and particularly when you're dealing with depression and anxiety and you know often sometimes those can be present more often in people who are perfectionists or who have low self-esteem or who struggle with self-compassion and so when you're in that position where you're feeling really hopeless and you're struggling with your self-compassion you start to see any sort of quote-unquote lapses in recovery as personal failures rather than just a normal natural and expected and necessary part of the process and it sounds like you sort of learned that firsthand. It sounds like you were going in and out of therapy when you first experienced seeking help. And yet things got a lot worse before they got better. And so I'm curious what that sort of realization was for you, how you accepted that it wasn't going to be this neat experience that could be capped at a certain time, that this time frame wasn't concrete, and that some of your life plans had to go on hold especially, you know, you mentioned that you took a year off. And I'm really curious what that year looks like because I know a lot of us crave the opportunity to sort of disconnect for a moment and recalibrate, but often our financial situations, our 
jobs, our family life, our academic responsibilities don't allow us to do that. And it can be really scary, but also very brave to go, shit, I don't know what this is going to look like or if it's going to pay off or if it's going to contribute more stress down the line. But I'm going to put things on hold and prioritize myself and wait this rocky journey out. So I want to know what that looks like for you. Yeah, that year was a whole story and a half. I remember thinking when I first dropped out of university, not only just was like absolutely consumed with shame that it had come to that, but I remember thinking that if I gave myself like a set time frame, like I thought it was only going to be a semester or two, I didn't drop out right away. At the end of that semester, I could fix myself and I would be all better and perfect and regular Evelyn good to go and I could just get back into it. And so what I kept finding continually throughout the year is that I had to keep postponing and deferring my semesters until I couldn't anymore and was forced to just either go back or drop out. And I had a panic attack at the thought of going back, so I dropped out. And that was anathema to everything that I thought I had in mind for my life plan up until that point. And to be clear, I was able to live with my parents because we were in a relatively privileged position that certainly isn't accessible to everyone. And it did have a cost. I really damaged my relationship with some people that I really care about, including my family. It was a significantly stressful time for everyone. They invested a lot in me going to therapy every week and being able to get better. And I was able to do that because we had health insurance. Not every American, as COVID-19 has made patently clear, has health insurance. So there was a lot of factors that enabled me to do that, and yet it still had personal cost attributed to it. And a lot of it was that shame. Like, as you mentioned, I kept relapsing continually in that year. I kept getting frustrated, like, why isn't this better? Why aren't I better already? I remember telling my therapist at the time, can we just skip to the end of the book where I'm at the end of the journey, I'm all fixed and better, I'm in the shitty part of the book right now, <laughs> I just want to skip onto it, and was just so frustrated that I wasn't. And ironically, I now am at the end of that book. <laughs> so I got my wish. I just had to wade through the three years it took to get there. What did your friends have to say? Because I know not everyone understands to this day, but I imagine even particularly then, because we've come so far, even within you know the last five years, I can imagine people would have had a lot of questions and a lot of things to say. Yeah, some people really didn't know how to handle it, and other people were remarkably compassionate, like my housemates that I was living with at the time. They all wrote me letters for me to read on the plane, and it was such a lovely gesture of, we love you, you're doing something brave, you're prioritizing yourself. And I'm just like, oh my god, you guys. I still have an answer to those letters, I really should. <laughs> so, but they were just so beautiful and so lovely, and I think about that sometimes. And other people just really didn't understand. Some people sort of cognitively knew that I was going through a hard time, but they weren't sure how they could show up or they were just unavailable to show up. Like a lot of my friends were still in college, so they had to prioritize their education as they should have. But even within my own families and because I was so choked up with shame, like I literally couldn't articulate what had happened and why to my parents. Like every time they asked me about it, I would just burst into tears and I literally couldn't speak. I was just that ashamed about what had happened, which was that I was depressed because I had undergone some trauma and everyone was sort of wondering, well, something must have big must have happened. But what had happened was that I had gotten pneumonia, gotten really sick and had to take six weeks off of uni and then failed a class as a result. And so that sort of shattered my self-identity. But some other people would go through that and have no problems whatsoever. So 
trauma is just whatever will overwhelm the individual, not what would overwhelm anyone. Although there are some traumas that would overwhelm anyone. Wow. A woman. Yeah, a woman. A woman. <laughs> you articulated that so beautifully because I know even in my own experience that shame has often come from a place of, oh my gosh, I've been through worse. Why is this getting me down? Oh my goodness. So-and-so next door, so-and-so from uni could have gone through this and come out the other side. Why am I having such difficulty getting through this and getting over this. And I think it's also even more complex when, you know, like we've discussed, mental ill health manifests differently in each individual, but also, you know, related to that, everybody functions at a different level with mental ill health. And I think as well, when you're somebody who is high functioning, who might be undergoing, you know, moderate to severe symptoms, but is still able to show up and operate at a certain level, it can be harder for other people to detect and it can also make them more confused and more uncomfortable to understand that those feelings of distress are coexisting with a certain level of achievement, if that makes sense. And I know, having known you in my personal life and professional life, that you operate at such a high level and you are someone who I would describe as, you know, having these symptoms but being a high-functioning person with those symptoms and that's something I'd identify with also and I think that combination having depression and or anxiety but also being high functioning with those symptoms almost just like quadruples the sense of shame that you feel because you're like I can do it I can do it I think it's really difficult then because people then also have an expectation of what you can deliver and when you can deliver and how often you can deliver And so when you finally want to pull the brakes up and go, shit, I can't do this anymore, you really feel like you're letting others down, but you also feel like you're letting yourself down because you tie so much of your identity and your self-worth to being able to produce, to show up, to create, and to act in a certain way. And when you finally realize that even though you can operate in that way under this level of stress, that you don't want to anymore and that it comes at too great a cost, it can be a really, really difficult thing to digest. Yeah, and there's such a difference between being high-functioning because you're able to manage your symptoms and being high-functioning because you have such a fear of failure and have this (laughs) intense shame (laughs) um, attached to not being high-functioning. As an act of self-love, please do not let it get to the point where you are literally incapable of doing anything you are so sick. Like, the point when you should get help is whatever point you want. It can Mm. be when you've just had one symptom on and off for a few weeks. Like, I think therapy should be free and accessible to anyone for any particular reason, whether or not it's you just really want to complain about this one friend or you're having some work issues or you have this deep childhood trauma that you need to work out. Like, the scale for which you deserve help is so immense. We have so much pressure in our society because, partly because it's capitalist and partly because we have such issues with vulnerability and with, again, a fear of failure that is taught to us that the idea of us not being functioning human beings, for lack of a better word, is incomprehensible. And we absolutely hate that. We're so bad with boundaries. We're expected to work so much. We're expected to hustle because if we don't hustle, then our future is in jeopardy. And what are other people going to think about us? What are we going to think about us? And that can be way worse than what other people think about us. Definitely, definitely. And we all know someone who could benefit by going to therapy and You know, I'm so open about my journey in therapy because I have so many friends who come to me and they go, oh, I think I should go to therapy, but like, I'm not necessarily in a bad way. Like something hasn't happened to me. And I always say to them, like, that's maybe even the perfect time to go because 
as I have heard from, you know, the trusted health professionals that I see, it's actually when you're in a better place that the real magic happens because you're able to implement those strategies. You're able to have those self-discoveries and those realizations, but also by going to therapy before something cataclysmic and completely detrimental to your mental health happens, you get to make sure that you stay at that level where you are functioning and where you are coping and when your resilience is strong and when your self-care is at its best. And so I think by everyone believing that they need to wait until something horrible happens to them, it's such a sort of reactive rather than proactive approach. And I think as well, when we understand that, you know, not only do we not need to wait for this big cataclysmic moment, but that living in this society in general is inherently stressful and therefore even someone with relative privilege can be vulnerable to mental ill health, then I think that would help people become more open to therapy. And you are someone who has articulated this to me in such a profound way about why it is that so many of us are susceptible to mental ill health, particularly in this day and age. And I'm wondering if you might be able to shed some more light on that. Uh, Okay, so I'm just going to absolutely plug the shit out of this book because this book changed my life. And I know that sounds like so like culty, but I freaking love it. It's this book called Lost Connections by Johan Hari, and it completely changed the way that I thought about how people became ill with depression. And so his basic theory, um, if you haven't read the book, although I highly recommend reading the book, is that there are a couple different ways that we sort of lose our ability to connect with the world, with ourselves, with each other, and that loss of connection is what our brains are reacting to. He has one line at the end of the book, you are an animal with unmet needs. It is not your fault that you feel this way. You've been put into an environment or you've had experiences that have led you to lose connections with yourself and with others and with the world. That make you sick. And some of the ways you can lose connections are that you feel particularly lonely. Like I know I've struggled with that a lot because I don't know, this is such a shame attached to being a lonely woman. I think we're expected to be able to socialize because we're the social gender, whatever that means. And we should be able to connect and nurture. But if you struggle with that, that can lead to depression. If you are stuck in a city and you're unable to get into the natural world, then that can really um, hurt you. I know one of my best experiences was just going to the Blue Mountains and sitting and looking at the Three Sisters. That was so beautiful. I felt so connected to nature and felt so much better that day. You can be disconnected because of childhood trauma. You could be disconnected because you are working a shitty job that doesn't align with your values. Like maybe you're- There's a global pandemic. (laughs) There's a global pandemic. That'll do it to you every time. Oh my goodness, every single time. I remember when like three weeks into lockdown, I could feel it coming on because I was such an old veteran. I'm like, okay, I know what this is. Here it comes, it's depression, but it sort of hit me so profoundly. I'm like, oh my God, this is what Johan Hari was talking about. I am not seeing people. I feel disconnected from everything. My brain is reacting accordingly. I am an animal currently with unmet needs. This is absolutely not my fault. And that in some ways was such a hard lesson to learn because if it was my fault, then I could control it. (laughs) Wow. But it wasn't my fault and I couldn't control it and it can just happen to everyone and that's terrifying and that's shitty and that shouldn't Mm -hmm. be how the world works, but that is how the world works. It can happen to anyone if they're put in the right situations. And some people have different thresholds. For some people, it doesn't take as much of those disconnecting circumstances to put them back in. Sometimes they're just closer to that threshold if they've had childhood trauma in particular or sometimes there's a genetic factor to it as well if you've got family members who've experienced mental ill health 
But oftentimes, yeah, if you're if you put anyone in the right circumstances for them, I guarantee you will be able to drive them crazy. Mm. For lack of a better word. said that feeling like it's your fault provides you in a weird walkway with a sense of comfort because it means you can control the situation I felt that in my bones and it's funny because you said this in our previous interview that was you know over six months ago and it really resonated with me but now you know having gone through the rest of 2020 and having had different things unfold it relates in a completely different way because I think the most terrifying feeling is when you feel like you have done everything in your control and when you feel like actually you are showing up to the best of your ability you are going to therapy you are being open you are trying to do things and it's still not working and when you're so used to being a control freak because I am a control freak I don't think I would have started a podcast where I could have my own conversations if I wasn't a control freak. But when you're a control freak who wants to fix everything and who assumes blame or responsibility for everything, doing the impossible and assuming all responsibility for your mental health and then having it not completely resolve is like paralyzing. And I think that sort of realization is often the catalyst, I think, for most people's most dangerous experiences of mental ill health. And I think for some people, that's when medication can be a really helpful alternative. But that's something, again, that is so highly stigmatized and everybody has their own personal views on medication, has their own personal journeys with it. I'm curious to know what your perspective on medication has been. Um... I'm not sure I'm the right person to talk to about medication because I've only been on one and that was for a week and it made me so sick I quickly went off it and never tried medication again. Johan Hari wrote about this quite a bit in Lost Connections because he had been on medication for years and was steadily upping his dose and it just was not working for him. And that's not to say that medication can't really make a difference in the lives of some people. If you genuinely need medication to help you cope and feel like you can access life to its fullest degree, then that is amazing. But I do not think it is the only option you have. And if your doctor tries to solve all your problems by medicating them, they're probably not tackling some of the other systemic and environmental factors that are contributing to you feeling ill. So for me personally, medication didn't make me feel like myself and that just made things worse it made me even more suicidal than I was and what I really needed to tackle was my history my trauma I really needed to unpack that I needed to develop some better coping mechanisms I needed to adjust some things about the way I was living and what kind of life I was headed towards and really sort of tackle those connections that I had lost in other ways but in other ways medication again can really really help people who are struggling. It can be sort of an additional thing that can help elevate you. So I know that you do therapy as well as take medication, if that's all right to say. Mm. It's it's not going to be like a one solution thing. If you're just taking medication and expecting that to solve it, it's not going to do that. And you need to 
address the causes in a way. And I think a lot of people sort of latch on to the idea of it solely being a brain chemistry issue because, again, that's easier to fathom than something else entirely out of their control. In some ways, it can sort of be a tackling the smoke of the house fire without actually putting out the flames in a way. I mean, when you think about it, what's easier for us to comprehend? That we're completely powerless, this thing could happen to anyone at any time, and we're that vulnerable all the time, especially if it happens to us when we're kids. Like, we are that vulnerable and we're that powerless. Or it's a brain chemistry thing that we can just medicate. Mm. It's a complicated issue. That's a lot to think about. Yeah. A lot to think about. And it's kind of confronting, a little bit depressing. <laughs> but it is the reality of the situation is that it's so complex and there are so many different ways of looking at it. And, you know, going into this recording, I actually wasn't going to disclose my journey with medication or my experience with mental ill health because, you know, it's, it's very raw, it's very personal, and I'm a really private person, which I know sounds odd because I have a podcast and because I use social media really regularly, but I think I try to use it in a really regulated way where I'm still maintaining and seeking connections with people that are based in love and compassion and vulnerability and empathy, but I'm also still kind of holding my cards close to my chest when it comes to the things that are maybe most sacred or most important to me. And I think mental ill health is one of those things. But I am coming to understand that if I want to put the tender and tender rage and if I want to lead by example then that calls for a little bit more vulnerability than I usually feel comfortable giving so you know I have had experiences with medication and have been in that sort of position where you do feel like your personal toolkit is no longer working at the level in which it needs to and in the time frame in which it needs to and I was someone who had so much shame when it came to experiencing mental ill health that the idea of medicating was just like absurd to me because I felt like, well, why would I do that when it's my fault? I'm causing this. I'm not doing enough. So I don't deserve to have this in my mind quick and easy way out. It's my fault. And I think as well, you have a lot of media portrayals of medication being a really dangerous and disastrous thing and I know for some people it can be and in the past it was and it's really interesting being in conversation with you Evelyn because I know we had such different experiences and of course when you see doctors about it they tell you about all of the risks and it sounds terrifying it sounded like something that would actually be to my detriment instead of my benefit and you know before trying it I had so many nervous conversations with doctors about what this would mean you know what does this say about who I am and my resilience and my strength and my worthiness in the world and my value part of me thought it was giving up I thought it was going to change my entire disposition and then part of me also was kind of hoping it would be this cure-all and I think it was really interesting when I had it explained to me that when your tools are no longer working, this is not a substitute for those tools. It's not a substitute for being grounded in connection, for going to therapy, for exercising and eating well and getting good rest. It is just another tool to add to the kit that can provide a little bit of relief because it's not just on you. It's one thing that enables you to better show up and develop better coping mechanisms and it's not forever. My experience has been positive. And I think it's really helpful to hear positive 
sort of experiences with medication because I know when I was looking into it, reading online, all you hear are the horror stories. And I'm so grateful that I had people like Evelyn and future guests be really honest and open with me about their journeys with medication because it helped me make an informed decision. And I was very blessed to have a great circle of support around me. But not everybody has that and medication isn't for everybody. And I think the great takeaway of this is that there is no one cure for mental ill health. It's also not something that for everyone happens once, is fixed and then goes away. You know, it's, some people struggle with it to different degrees their entire lives. And often it takes throwing a lot of different things at it at the same time for any progress to be made. And, you know, I can imagine there are different sort of natural tipping points in life that might test your resolve and, and sort of put you back into those moments in time where you're not feeling as strong as usual or you're experiencing your mental health. I want to know in those moments, what are the things that help you, you know, grounding yourself and what are the sort of ways that people can show up for you and that you show up for yourself? Okay, so I know for myself personally, in the absolute worst moments, what helps me is to have a rock in the back of my mind that I can just let whatever stormy waves I'm currently riding through beat against. And that rock isn't going to go anywhere. The stormy waves can be as big and powerful as they need to be, and they can batter and bash against the rock. But the storm is temporary, the rock is forever, and the rock is things that I know to be true no matter what my symptoms are telling me or no matter what the storm of thoughts in my head currently going around is telling me. Um, And that list includes the names of people who I don't have their permission to hurt myself. Um, And that list can be as personal to you. It doesn't have to be family members. It could just be anyone who you know if they heard that you were going to do something to yourself, they would go, no, you do not have my permission to quit you have my permission to ask for help and all that other stuff but you do not have my permission to do anything permanent and also just contains other little bits of life advice again like the storm is temporary and to be fiercely kind to yourself like I say fiercely because you need utter bravery to be kind to yourself in those moments when you absolutely hate yourself like you just I don't want to be with myself anymore I want out of this relationship (laughs) this is a bad relationship I don't like this No, you need to be fiercely like a warrior kind to yourself and you need to take care of the body if you can't take care of the mind. So do something that can help get you out of your head, whether or not that's going for a two minute walk or a five minute walk, however long a walk you can muster. If you can cook yourself something, even if it's just slicing an apple to help nourish yourself with whatever your body is currently craving or to having a bath or just having something that clues you into bodily sensations like I have this weighted blanket that I really quite like wrapping myself around in or even if it's just getting someone to sit with you in those moments like can I give the example of yesterday absolutely yeah so this is a very sweet yesterday I texted (laughs) Sunny yesterday saying that I was having a really stressful time and I was having a bit of a mental health crash and lo and behold she shows up at my doorstep with hot crust buns (laughs) and a caramel and some beautiful gluten-free caramel slice so having a friend that you can talk to and if you have that established relationship with them like I do with Sunny and they can show up for you and you can give them very clear instructions about what you need like she's asked me is there anything I can do I'm very good at vacuuming I'm like I would really appreciate it if you vacuum my room just those little things that can take care of the environment and can take care of the body that can help nourish you through a bad moment and she completely turned my day around like I'm just odd that I have a friend as wonderful and loving as Sunny and that also models the behavior that you can give to others and that you can expect 
to give her yourself. Like one of your most important relationships is the relationship that you have with yourself. So you can perform those acts of self-love even if you don't have anyone else that you can call on in that moment, you will always be able to call on yourself in that moment. And you can think of the side of you that's mentally ill and think about the side of you that's a healthy adult that can come in and nurture you in ways that maybe you haven't been nurtured or can't be nurtured currently. So the ultimate goal is to have a friend or a loved one that can help you through that. But if you don't have one, you can absolutely do that for yourself. And I highly insist that you love yourself unconditionally. Absolutely. There have been so many times that Evelyn um, and other beautiful friends have showed up for me. And I just think that's why it's so important to be transparent with each other about mental health. Because when you have that dialogue with your friends, you then let them in and you allow them to help you and to show you the love that they have for you. And so many friends want to do that for you. And, you know, this is a note to self as well, because I hate asking for help. And I'm lucky to have friends who I don't even need to ask sometimes who just show up and give me what I sometimes don't even know I need. I like to think that in by leading by example and being open, you know, we do that because we want the other people in our lives who we love and who would hate to think of as suffering and silence. We give them permission to do the same, to hold boundaries and to be transparent and, you know, to reveal us for as much as they feel comfortable doing so, because obviously people have different amounts of information that they feel comfortable sharing and that it's an ongoing journey filled with baby steps. But I know one of the things that can be helpful for a lot of people I know in my life or in general, even for myself, is something that you've spoken to me about before, which is just sometimes you need someone to clarify reality for you. And you think that the world's caving in, you think that you suck or something that you've done sucks, or you think that there's no way out. Having somebody go, how you feel is valid and I'm sorry that you feel that way and I can connect the dots as to why in your position you would come to this conclusion. But how I see it, And how it is in my perspective is X, Y. It is different. You know, I'm sorry that at the moment you feel like there's never going to be a way to get out of the situation. But how I see it is this. And I think not demonizing people for having thoughts or feelings that don't always make sense or aren't logical is really helpful. So being that person to go, I'm not here to dismiss how you're feeling because that's very real, how you're feeling. But it is not necessarily the truth. Those murky feelings can coexist with the truth. And that truth can be completely different than how you're feeling and that's okay it's like feeling okay in that discomfort of acknowledging this feeling is real to me but it's not the truth yeah exactly especially because one of the major symptoms of being mentally ill is that your perception of reality is skewed and that's not meant to make people panic but it's just something to be aware of is that people who are depressed tend to read neutral faces as more aggressive than they are so just being able to check in like I know I've had times where I've just been like oh my god I said something in the group chat and nobody replied is that because I pissed everyone off and someone being like no no no, you're fine or even again just to go back to the example of yesterday I showed you the assignment that I've been working on and I was feeling so awful about it I'm like oh my god how am I ever going to get this done does it make sense to anyone I showed it to you and you're like no you're fine like you were able to just sort of reorient your perspective because you can get led down this hole of I'm worthless and you can start believing the lies that your symptoms are telling you and incorporating that into how you think about how the world works and that's just often not the case so decide when you are healthy who you trust and who your friends are (laughs) and it is tricky and I don't want people who have had negative experiences where they maybe trusted the wrong person or had a trusted person let them down I don't want that to dissuade them from ever reaching out because those experiences can be really traumatizing and really upsetting but I never want that to be the end of the story for people I never want that to be the last 
risk they take in terms of asking for support. I know some beautiful people in my life who really struggle to open up and their reasons for doing so are valid. You know, that's a coping mechanism that has kept them safe and it exists for a reason. But everybody is worthy of having a support network and sometimes that process can be very uncomfortable because it means taking risks. It means being vulnerable in a way that we're often not taught to be uh, or that we stigmatize internally, but we are all worthy of having that. And not everybody does. And I think that's where like random acts of kindness with strangers can make all the difference. Sometimes you never know the impact that you can have on somebody's day. And I think as well, we do a really interesting thing with pain Olympics, which is something that you speak about quite eloquently is where we minimize how we're feeling because there are people who have it worse. Pain Olympics is a metaphor I got from Tumblr where it's like, yeah, people use the fact that other people have it worse as an excuse for not getting help or to minimize their own pain or to dismiss their own pain. Or sometimes people go the opposite route where they're like, I've always had it worse. You don't deserve to get help because I have had this great big thing happen to me. What you're going through isn't a big deal. But that is not really a constructive way to think about that because everyone's experience, again, is so relative. What happened to me was quite traumatic for me, but to another person, it might have been no big deal or it would be a no big deal thing for me at a different point in my life. So there are so many circumstances that you might not be aware of that can help contribute to someone feeling bad, but also at the same time, again, as I said earlier, the reasons for getting help is such a spectrum and that spectrum is so wide and it could just be that you're having a bit of trouble at work. So it doesn't matter like how deep the water is if you're still drowning, if that makes sense. Like we all deserve to get help. Like they give you a test to see like how depressed you are often when they're making a diagnosis, but that doesn't mean if you're only showing a few symptoms that you can't get help in a way. Like we all deserve help. Like one of the things that has changed about me since I've been grappling with mental ill health is I've had to understand that everyone is worthy of help. Everyone is worthy of life. Everyone has this innate worthiness because they're beautiful human beings. They've got so many unique and special things about them and everyone is like that. So if I can't believe that about everyone, then there's no way I'm going to be able to believe it about myself in those worst mm -hmm. moments. So everyone is capable of positive change. Everyone can be rehabilitated. Everyone is worthy of life and a good life at that, where their needs are provided for and they feel connected to themselves and a community. Like everyone is worthy of that because I need to believe that everyone is worthy of that. Mm. It's really helpful for allowing us to normalize the prevalence of mental ill health because when you think about the fact that we all deserve a good quality of life you can't help but realize that not all of us have access to a good quality of life and there are different factors that can influence that whether that is you know your class your financial security your race your gender your sexual identity your ability and mobility there are a lot of different factors and factors that often don't occur in isolation that often intersect that 
can make your experiences of mental ill health not only more likely, but more intense. And that obviously doesn't invalidate somebody who doesn't have those extra factors or extra identities overlapping, but it makes an intersectional approach to mental health awareness and mental health treatment even more important because sometimes the people who are suffering the most have the least access to mental health services and support. And I think when you look at globally the environment that we're looking at now, particularly reflecting on 2020, where we were experiencing some pretty unstable and turbulent times as a society, and then when we're oversaturated with bad news, and when we're constantly forced to consume more information than as humans we were ever equipped to, and then we're also having these like crazy civil rights movements at the same time, there's kind of, and I, I mean this, I don't even mean this to sound depressing because, you know, I'm, I like to describe myself as being optimistic and hopeful despite my experiences of anxiety, but it kind of makes sense that like trauma or depression or anxiety is kind of just a byproduct of the way that we're living at the moment. And I think that can really help take away some of that self-blame and can also help us understand why in recent years it has seemed like more people are being diagnosed because the way that we're living is changing, but also because we're becoming more open about it. This world sort of benefits from fundamental forms of disconnection, like racism and sexism and fat phobia are all extremely profitable. And the system benefits from creating a cycle of conditions that keep you poor, that keep you from accessing materials that can help you cope better with life. I mean, therapy can't fix those conditions that are systemic and require greater societal change like racism, like sexism, like all these other things that have economic benefits for keeping themselves going. I mean, if society doesn't grapple with basic inequalities like not having a livable minimum wage like they do in the United States or any of that other stuff, or if they can continue to perpetuate the lie that it is your fault and that things like poverty and mental ill health are a character and moral failing, then they don't have any obligation to help you fix it or to help make life easier for you. They can just let you continue to suffer because you brought it on yourself. But you didn't bring it on yourself. It's not your fault if you've experienced these profound forms of discrimination and disconnection and you have responded accordingly as anybody would in those circumstances. But corporations would love to just peddle these basic capitalist self-care tips like, oh, if you just have a bath with this particular bath bomb or you have this makeup, it's great if that works for you, but that won't address like someone who was abused as a kid or someone who's being abused now or like an indigenous person, especially an indigenous man, because their suicide rate is shocking. There's no panacea, and like many other forms of discrimination and disconnection in our society, it's going to take a cocktail of resources to fix it. It's not going to be one thing, and it has to be a collective effort. And for me, I think that collective effort begins with me just creating space in my life where people can be vulnerable if they need to and speak up if they are suffering and that they need help. But yeah, if you if you want to help people who are in the mental ill health community, you need to vote accordingly. You need to make sure that you are actively making their lives easier in ways that reflect the macro scale of the structures that keep people in situations of mental ill health and benefit from people being mentally ill. The social institutions that in some ways have autonomy over us are not conducive to 
joy. And I think we live in a society that fueled by capitalism is increasingly individualistic. And we are human beings who thrive in communities and who need to get back to community. And I'm blessed to be surrounded by a wonderful community, but not everybody is. And I hope that this podcast becomes a community for people, a sounding board for their thoughts that they can't begin to articulate or didn't know they had. And I hope that this gives our listeners permission to become more vulnerable and more honest and transparent and to hold boundaries. Setting boundaries is something that Evelyn, wow, you could teach a masterclass in. We, for those who don't know me personally, Evelyn and I first met because we were both editors on our university's magazine and you know we worked together in a professional capacity for a year and developed a friendship alongside of that but you know working together so closely meant that we sort of had to set boundaries with work-life balance and how that coexisted with mental health and I was always constantly amazed when you would so openly sort of communicate to the group look I'm feeling flat right now. I need to do X, Y, Z. I'm going to be away for X, Y, Z. But if you need to contact me, you can contact me at X, Y, Z. I was like, whoa, it can be that simple. You know what I mean? Like you were asking for what you needed while maintaining your sort of agency and the level of privacy that you wish to maintain. Um, But you were also being really helpful in letting us know, okay, this is what we can expect. Um, Can you talk a little bit just quickly before we conclude the episode about how you set boundaries, why we need to set boundaries and how other people can set boundaries and what that might look like? Yeah, so setting boundaries is something I'm definitely not used to and I'm still practicing. It's important to acknowledge that while it's great to be able to share your story and be open and sort of dismiss the shame that is associated with mental ill health, not everyone is entitled to know your story particularly your employers, because mental ill health is a disability. It is an illness. You have the right to disclosure with that, but you can set boundaries with your family, with your friends, with work colleagues in a way that honors the level of disclosure that is appropriate and that you are comfortable with, while also making sure that your personal lines are upheld and that you are able to exist and cooperate in a way that you need. So The boundaries that I set have a what I need component and a how long it will last for component. And boundaries can last for years or forever or for a weekend, (laughs) sometimes in my case. So I will tell people, I need this, this, and this. So I need no contact for a couple days. So a couple days is the time period. The what I need is the no contact thing. I have this provision. So if you desperately need to contact me for this emergency, you have my permission to contact me this way, but I will respond to you in a way and in a time manner that suits me. So if you message me, I will answer during the day only, or I'll answer during the following day. Like honoring those lines and when the time frame is, is a way that you can set boundaries in a way that people can respect. Because if people don't know what your lines are, they're going to stumble across them just without even knowing and often completely without malice. I mean, people respond really well to you giving them directions. So give people directions, let them know how they can help you. And that will give them permission to do the same whenever they're struggling. So me opening up that space within the magazine editorial team also gave other people permission to be like, you know what, I actually need to step away from a week. I need to take care of myself. You can contact me here for these reasons. I'll get back to you this way and I will come back to work refreshed and ready on this date. Why do you think it initially feels so uncomfy to do so, to set those boundaries? 
yeah, it's so uncomfortable to set those boundaries because we're not often rewarded for asking for those sorts of things. When you're used to operating without boundaries, suddenly having a boundary makes it feels like you are asking too much of people or putting up walls in a way. Particularly because some people get yelled at by their friends and co-workers and family or feel like it earns reprisal for setting boundaries and that's usually from the people who benefited from you having no boundaries. <laughs> you can say that again that's a little mic drop come on if our microphone wasn't attached to this rickety table i would have dropped it on the floor um if you haven't caught on yet a woman is our new catchphrase so brilliantly pioneered <laughs> pioneered that sounds jesus christ what it's a just, wanker so it's brilliantly so petty <laughs> articulated it. by evelyn um look we love men but like mm-hmm. We really love women and a woman is the direction that we're going within this podcast. Hopefully that doesn't alienate any listeners. I think it came about because I was editing a document that we were working on for the magazine and I was I was in all caps typing amen and I think it was like a document on feminism or something like that and I just saw the men and just latched onto that. I love men, you know, but also at the same time just like, all right, let's redress the balance a little bit. Mm-hmm. A women, why mm-hmm. not? I could literally speak about that for 500 more episodes making myself unavailable and that sounds really bad so if i haven't been replying to messages it's not just you i swear that's one of my favorite boundaries but that might look different for you maybe you might feel like you love to be supported by seeing lots of people again introvert extrovert combination of such and maybe one of your coping mechanisms is listening to this podcast (laughs) who knows maybe that's a bit audacious of me but maybe one day Either way, there are people you can speak to. There are hotlines that you can call. I just want everyone to realize that their value and their sense of self is not defined by their experiences of mental health. People still have inherent value when they are suffering with mental ill health. And people will still have genius and resilience and strength and the ability to seek and receive help even when they are recovering. But who we are is completely separate. It's a part of ourselves that we should accept and understand and treat with compassion and care but it is not all of us and i just hope that we can get to a place where as a society we are more compassionate to each other and to ourselves a woman a woman a woman and if you were listening to this podcast that means that you have survived a hundred percent of your worst days Woohoo! look at you go good on you If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health, please consider speaking to your local GP, a healthcare professional, or calling one of the numbers below. These numbers will also be included in the episode blurb. Lifeline, 13 11 14. Beyond Blue, 1300 22 4636. If you are struggling with self-injurious behaviour such as self-harming or an eating disorder, please reach out to the following. The Butterfly Foundation. 02-9412-4499. You've been listening to Tender Rage with Sunny Adcock featuring guest Evelyn DuBose, where we unpacked mental ill health. Follow her at Evelyn DuBose on Instagram. For more content, follow us on at Tender Rage Podcast. Tender Rage is an original production written and directed by yours truly, Sunny Adcock. 
co-produced and edited by our lovely guest for this episode, Evelyn DuBose, who also did the music you're listening to right now. Thank you so much for tuning into the space. Get keen for more episodes coming your way and take care of yourself. <laughs>